Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Paul Bashan. We're at Recipe Restaurant uh, in Newburgh. It's October 5th, 2020. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, why you got into food. Well, uh, growing up, in a, you know, I think a lot, a lot of people have grown up around food. It, it really brings back memories of your childhood and, you know, um, grandparents, aunts, uncles, family members that, you know, embrace food and um, becomes a becomes a part of your family. It becomes a social part of the uh, interaction with your family and eating and, and, and drinking. And it's uh, just kind of been embedded in me since a, since childhood. My parents were both in the uh, food and wine industry for a long time. My mother was a baker. Beautiful beautiful birthday or birthday and wedding cakes, uh, pastries and such. Um, my father was the cellar master for Inglenook uh, back in the 70s. Um, so it was just growing up around food and wine was um, just just my norm, which was a lot of fun. Uh, it was impressed on me at a very young age um, the importance of being having family and a meal together. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, good friends, are still really good friends, have one of a uh, restaurant operating in California called The Hobbit um, that is uh, still operating. It's been I think it's third generation now. Um, it's in Southern California. It's a great little restaurant. I grew up in the kitchen there, basically. Uh, when I was starting at about six years old, I was in the kitchen learning to make hollandaise and standing on milk crates and uh, rolling out puff pastry with, with big bombs of, of champagne bottles and um, learning you know, the classics and the fundamental classics of French cooking from... Uh, Chef Mike Philippi, who's still a very good friend of mine. He comes up to Oregon almost every year with his wife. They come up for the Salud Wine Auction and uh, really have supported Oregon wine industry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's kind of how I got started in it and never really got out of it. So. Tell me about the kind of progression then for you and tell me about how you ended up in Oregon. Um, I, you know, when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a chef all the way from when I was a child. I knew I wanted to be a chef. Um, so coming up, to Oregon, you know, I looked at cooking schools all over the West Coast, um, San Francisco, LA, uh, Portland, and Portland just seemed to fit me, um, and I fit in in Portland, so it was a just kind of an easy transition to, you know, jump in the car right after graduation and uh, drive up the five and start a new life in Portland, and went to Western Culinary Institute, uh, graduated in 1995. And uh, yeah, so. So from there, tell me, take me through your kind of path to where you are now with sure, recipe. Sure. After graduating uh, at Western Culinary, I had worked all over Portland and, and Aloha. And I worked at the Reserve Golf Club, helped open that place. Um, worked there for a few years. And then I uh, had an opportunity to move down to Central Oregon, lived in Bend. Um, from the late 90s to the early 2000s, which was a great experience. Um, worked at a ru- wonderful little French restaurant called Cafe Rosemary. Um, and uh, 
you know, snowboarded during the days and, and worked at nights. And it was, uh, it was a great experience. Worked there for about uh, three and a half, four years. And then um, I just saw Ben changing a lot. The dynamics of the dining scene and Ben started changing. Um, there was a lot of progression. Um, you know, Jody Denton had opened up Miranda, which I had worked for uh, for, for about a year. That was a great experience. Um, and then beyond that, it just, um, the dining scene kind of changed a lot. Mm -hmm. And I saw more opportunities up here in Oregon wine country in the Willamette Valley, so I um, packed up and headed up to the Willamette Valley here. You mentioned wine country. At what point does, does wine become part of the story for you? Wine's always been a part of the story for me. Um, you know, growing up in it, you know, my father, again, he was the cellar master for Inglenook, so I was always surrounded by wine, not only at the house, but at the Hobbit, learning, you know, um, mostly about California wines then, and, then progressing into, I, I kind of fell in love with French and Italian wines over the years um, and just saw such a tremendous opportunity up here in, in the Willamette Valley to, uh, to plant my roots and see what happens. As you became kind of aware of Oregon's wine industry, do you remember what your kind of early impressions of it were compared to California? Yeah, I remember when I moved up to Portland in 94, I had um, driven out here and back in 94, Newburgh and Dundee were about what they are today. Not much different, <laughs> um, which is great, you know. Um, it has changed a lot, but it's also still the same Oregon wine country that I first visited in 94. I, I recall, in, I think it was 95 when I went to Tina's, I came down here um, and, and tasted wine at the day, uh, for the day at Lang. And I remember Jesse Lang, you know, riding around on a skateboard. He was probably... 10, 11 years old, and Wendy and Don were in their basement, and they had opened up their uh, their their basement, and that was their tasting room. Mm -hmm. And those are, and, and Tori Moore was there also, and that was kind of my earliest impressions of Oregon wine country. Um, wasn't much else. Um, dined at Tina's that night, um, which was which was great. I mean, Michael, who owns it now, um, was my server, so he's been there a long time. Um, David and Tina Bergen owned it back then, and uh, you know, it was a. Uh, it was a great little place. So that was my first impressions of, of Oregon wine country. What about the wine itself? Wine itself, um, you know, it's much different now. Back then, I think there was that. Uh, they were still learning to ferment. A lot of the winemakers were still learning to ferment. They were, especially the newer ones, you know, you had the, the pioneers, David Lett and the Ponzi's and, um, you know, that, that had set the groundwork. And then, you know, you had all these new, young, energetic winemakers were coming in and they were, um, you know, testing the waters and seeing what was working and what wasn't. Um, I recall the wines being um, lighter than they are now, um, uh, more traditional in style. I would say for Pinot Noir, there are those, you know, I think, and that's what I love about Oregon Pinot Noir is there's such a differentiation of stylist, uh, styles of Oregon Pinot Noir. You have the lighter, um, more traditional styles, and then you have the, the, the you know, richer, bigger, kind of uh, bolder mm -hmm. styles that, uh, People are, you know, they're making for certain people's palates. So. so tell me about this place and, mm -hmm. and opening it. And I guess before that, we always talk about meeting Emily at, along, along the way at sure. some point and, sure. and then starting this place. Yeah, so um, after I moved up here, I worked um, at a few different restaurants in the area. I worked at the Joel Palmer house with Jack Zarnecki. 
Um, I was in the front of the house selling the wine. I, I actually went there for a cooking position, but he offered me a front of the house position. So I jumped on it to get my foot in the door in Oregon wine country and to get, um, to get uh, you know, to know people. And so I worked there in the nights and in the daytimes I was cooking at the Dundee Bistro, which was a lot of fun. And that was 20 years ago, um, which is still a place that Emily and I love to go to. Um, and then I, uh, I worked at uh, Willikensie Estate for when, when Bernard and Ronnie LaCroote owned it. And I was their harvest chef for about three and a half years, um, doing a lot of their, their private dinners and um, cellar club events and stuff like that. Um, cooking for the team, cooking for the winemaking team, and just having a great time up there. It's a beautiful setting. Um, it's one of Oregon's iconic settings as far as, uh, as, far as the, the vineyards and the, the history of it, so it's wonderful. Um, and then I, I uh, went up to, I was presented an opportunity to open a restaurant in Sherwood called Hunter's Ridge, and that's where I met Emily. Um, worked there for a couple of years, and then um, decided that wasn't the place for me. Um, and then just kind of did, did a few things here and there, and then came down and uh, opened Farm to Fork in Dundee um, in 2009, helped build that out. Um, I also worked at La Rambla. I opened La Rambla back in 2004. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's, that was a great experience. I basically came back from Spain, and I was a friend of mine who I went to culinary school with who owns a little boutique in McMinnville. So my friend's mother's looking to open a Spanish restaurant and so things just kind of was that perfect storm and uh, I met Kathy Stoller and she offered me the position as executive chef, helped her build out the place and that was a lot of fun. Um, and then fast forward five years, it was farm to fork and then um, after I left there it was time to, I feel, go on my own and uh, pursue my dream of owning a restaurant that I've had for a long time. So I um, just kind of was looking around and I saw this building that was for sale or for, for lease and uh, it had a commercial kitchen. So it was kind of a plug and play restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, my business partner and I kind of built it on a dime store budget with uh, old chairs that we got from an old bar in downtown Portland and sanded them in my garage. Um, I think I still have sawdust in my ear from sanding 45 chairs. Um, and then we just, you know, built it, kind of was a homemade haircut of a restaurant, but it, it was a very quirky place at that time. You had to go outside uh, down the little pathway to use the restroom, which was, um, you know, it, it made recipe what it is, um, kind of that quirkiness. So that was 2011 that we opened it up. Uh, Emily and I got married in that year too, so it was, um, you know, a, a big year for us both. We're, we kind of see ourselves as cowboys. We just grab things and we, and we go for it and we do things. Um, so opening a restaurant and getting married in the same year was, was quite the, uh, the venture, which you know, kind of made us who we are today. And, and, and uh, we still have that mentality and that, that uh, vision of being just uh, you know, moving forward and getting stuff done. Um, and then in 2016, we had the unfortunate fire here at the restaurant, um, which uh, you can't mentally, physically, or emotionally prepare for something like that. Um, getting a call at 4.30 in the morning from the fire department to say that your restaurant's on fire, mm -hmm. that's uh, something that um, you just can't prepare for. <laughs> um, but again, it, it shapes you who you are and kind of you know, helps you overcome challenges. Um, so we 
you know, while we're sitting back scratching our heads watching the place burn and watching the fire department, you know, put out the fire. Um, once the adrenaline wore off of that, uh, you know, we decided, well, let's, what are we doing next? So we opened up uh, Bardu, which was down the street from here. Uh, in, in, we opened it December 28th of 2016. So about six months after the fire, we opened it up. Um, kind of a vision, it was a temporary pop-up to just keep the brand alive, keep the community fed, um, keep our staff employed. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, uh, that kind of transitioned over about a year period and we, um, actually about six months, and we found that people wanted more than what we were offering. So, but we, we didn't have the, the, the money to put in to build a commercial kitchen in there. So our friend of ours let us uh, lease his food truck. So we pulled a food truck out back and ran a POS system out there and uh, ran a little 40 seat restaurant. We could do 120 covers a night out of a food truck. And, you know, we were doing all of our classic dishes, our escargot, our gnocchi, um, our salads, you know, we were cooking bisteca florentinas, big porterhouse steaks in a food truck and, um, you know, plating them beautifully presented and bringing them, shuttling them inside. And, um, you know, it was, it was very quirky, and, but it worked. Um, we had a lot of fun with it. Um, and again, it was that opportunity to overcome a challenge and to really push ourselves to see what we could uh, achieve. And, um, and then fast forward two years, three months after the fire, we had, uh, our landlord was, was very, very gracious enough to um, basically retrofit and rebuild this restaurant where recipes been um, to our specifications. So she said, however you'd like it, wow. I'd be happy to, uh, to uh, do it with the intention of she wanted, she was looking to sell the restaurant to us, which we're sure uh, it's in our future, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we've reopened it in September of 2018, and here we are in October of 2020, and facing another challenge with COVID and, <laughs> and all the beautiful things that that presents. So, yeah, it's uh, so it's been a really smooth ride, is what you're saying. Yeah, real, yeah, the yeah. way you laid it out, right, whole plan, right, perfect. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna come back to COVID in a second, but I want to. That was a lot of good stuff there. I want to kind of back up for a moment. Tell me about um, all, all the places you've worked, uh, coming, coming out of school and then going to those places. Tell me about kind of developing your philosophy for what you wanted your food to be, what you wanted your style to be. And, and then tell me about, like, I'm also curious about, as you're working for all these different places, helping get places started, how do you fit yourself into someone else's vision when, it's, when it comes to uh, La Rambla or, or the, the, the spot in Sherwood where you're trying to, sure. you have your own style, but you're obviously trying to fit someone else's as well. Right. Well, you know, it depends. I think the, the restaurant itself will define the type of cuisine you're, you're cooking. Obviously, La Rambla was a Spanish, Spanish tapas restaurant, so that's kind of, we know we were going that direction with the food. Um, Hunter's Ridge, you know, is an American restaurant, so we knew burgers, steaks, um, you know, big thick pork chops and roasted fish and stuff like that would fit in very well. Um, it just kind of, you know, I think food is defined by the person and by the chef who's creating it. Um, they're they're going to have their own unique style and creativity that they like to um, showcase. Um, so, yeah. So tell me about yours. What is your, what is your style? Um, we've kind of deemed it as uh, thoughtfully prepared wine country cuisine. Um, you know, we definitely compose our menus um, in accordance with the seasons. We adapt to each season very enthusiastically. Um, you know, we don't believe in using tomatoes in the winter time when they're not 
you know at their at their best flavor um, you know so we we definitely in the summertime lighter dishes more quicker cooking um, techniques mm -hmm. uh, vegetable based sauces vinaigrettes lighter cooking and then you know the fall and winter which is I think every chef can agree that's their favorite time to cook um, you know you get into the kitchen and the slowing methods and techniques slow down a little bit um, the cooking methods mm -hmm. and you know dishes become richer and deeper in flavor and layered with more complexity so um, yeah supporting local farmers and ranchers and all of our community of purveyors has always been um, you know important to us especially the wine um, and the food mm -hmm. that's kind of what what really defines our vision and recipe um, but we also reach outside of the community and, and outside of the United States. We basically like to get the best product that we can um, and really showcase it in a, in a simple way where you really get to uh, enjoy the primary flavors or the, the primary ingredient mm -hmm. of that dish. So things, you know, things that really enhance the flavors, not mask it or cover it up. Mm -hmm. And obviously the wine plays a huge role in that as well. Tell me about that. Tell me about uh, finding, preparing foods that, that showcase Oregon wine specifically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Oregon wine, uh, tend, it's nice because you have such a large gamut of styles of Oregon wine. You have the lighter, more um, refined styles. You have the bigger, um, you know, robust styles. You've got some showcase the acidity more, some showcase fruit more. So it's nice to be able to work with those those uh, wines. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously taking into consideration those the dishes, what you're cooking. You know, if you're cooking a richer, heavier uh, dish, uh, you probably pick, uh, choose a wine that has higher acidity to kind of balance that out. Uh, that's that's kind of at the forefront of our thoughts when, we, when we're composing dishes and menus. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about when you're choosing wine for your restaurant specifically, obviously we have a wine behind you here. What is it you're looking for uh, in terms of building your wine list? How would you define your wine list here? I think quality and value definitely um, are, guide our selections when we're, when we're composing our wine list. Um, those, you know, we like to offer, a, you know, a, a good selection. Um, we kind of know what the, our guests what their target price point is, where the sweet spot is, where they like to spend. Um, then you get the, the people in here that really don't have a budget. They, they just like to spend, um, you know, they really like to enjoy the wines. It, it, it doesn't matter the cost. Um, so yeah, I would say quality and value definitely guide our selection. Um, you know, definitely want wines that, that showcase their terroir and where they're from, whether it's Eola Amity Hills or Yamil Carlton or Dundee Hills. They're all very distinctive in their own way. Um, so we like to, you know, have a nice selection of, of each from each AVA. Do you find yourself seeking out specific wines or winemakers, or do you find yourself mostly being kind of receptive to who comes to you? Yeah, I mean, we have our, you know, we have our favorites that we've always, um, that we've always showcased and um, but there's always, you know, there's always a new one almost every day or every week or every month. There's seems like a new person on the scene that's doing something uh, different or better or, you know, yeah. just having a lot of fun with it. So, so someone uh, were to eat here, what was what, what's one thing you'd want to resonate with them about the experience? Um, that's what we do. We, you know, we've always kind of created an experience here for our guests. Um, and I impress that on our staff very, very often, you know, that, you know, 
we're creating an experience here. We're not just uh, a restaurant for people to come in. I mean, we want people to come in just, whether you're in muddy boots and you just got out of the vineyard or the field or whatever, we want you to come in. Um, so yeah, we just want people to come in. Um, you know, when we built Recipe, uh, my wife and I, Emily, were, um, when we were envisioning what Recipe would be, um, we were looking through an encyclopedia and Recipe kind of stood out and one of the definitions of Recipe is a uh, method to attain a desired end. And we wanted this restaurant to be that method to attain the guest desired end of a meal, which is sit back, reflect on what you've had, um, enjoy it, and, and leave here with a great experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we wanted to create an atmosphere that was very reminiscent of the home dining room um, to make people feel comfortable, whether they're walking just from down the street from our neighbors that, um, you know, the community right around here, um, or the person that's traveling from the far reaches of the of the world. So, mm -hmm. yeah. tell me about the the reception you've had, uh, sort of built as you've built your brand here in Newburgh. How is how have you fit into wine country? Um, you know, I've I've been here a long time. I've been here in wine country for over twenty years, and um, I think you know adapting to and getting to know your guests and what they their expectations and what they like um, is very important. Um, I think. You know, again, going back to creating that experience, it's knowing the guest's name. It's knowing that, you know, um, who likes what when they sit down and they, they have to have their cocktails before they have their food hit the table and just getting to know their, uh, their dining habits. And they really, people enjoy that because it shows that it's a personalized attention to, to them mm -hmm. as our guest um, in, a, in the restaurant. So. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about it a couple of times with, with that answer and before, but I'm curious about with, hosp with hospitality. How would you define hospitality when it pertains to recipe and, and how do you train people to, to give that kind of hospitality? Um, going back, you know, I think it, coaching, we like to coach our staff to impress that, you know, you, you don't know what kind of a day a person's had, whether they've, they're in a joyous celebratory uh, day that they've had a family member had a baby or they may have come from a funeral or they may have gotten some bad news I don't know but when people come through the door you know we want to make sure that they're welcomed um, they're taken care of as our guests it's very important to us and um, and I think our staff really really embraces that um, they've come to know my expectations and I know they either they fit in with that or they don't you know mm -hmm. and we've had people that that, um, you know, I think everybody has the best intentions, but sometimes it just doesn't work out for some people, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but overall, I think we've, uh, you know, it, it, it comes with just who that person is and, um, and getting, you know, again, getting to know our expectations and our guidelines and the standards that we have set um, for, for proper service, for a, a steak that's cooked perfectly, or a bottle of wine that's at the right temperature, or that cocktail that's mixed perfectly. So, yeah. I'm I'm curious uh, in your through your time in wine country. Obviously, the the industry has grown up quite a bit since you've been here. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the consumers and how how if if at all how they've changed when it comes to interacting with with wine specifically. Do you have a different kind of clientele? Do they ask different questions? They're looking for different things now. You know, the clientele can be all over the board. Some people are just looking for a simple bottle of wine that, uh, you know, goes goes really well with the food, and that's where they rely on myself or, or our staff to guide them in that direction. Because um, you know, you have you have so many different consumers, you know, and it's it's 
our goal to be able to adapt to their needs and their and their uh, specifications on what they like. And uh, so, as far as the consumer goes, you know, we get a lot of we have a lot of winemakers come in here, um, and they like to drink. Primarily, they like to drink. Uh, you know, older old world wines, Italian and French and, and Spanish and German, uh, just because it's different. I think they really like to compare mm -hmm. um, and really kind of lock horns with a with a wine from you know the f obscure regions of France um, and varietals that maybe they're not too familiar with. They're becoming extinct or just have <laughs> a lot of uh, of uh, uniqueness to them. So, mm -hmm. tell me about. Um the best advice someone's given you in regards to your work in food and wine? Best advice. Um, hmm. Best advice. Well, you know, my wife impresses on me all the time that, um, you know, it, she, she really kind of has, uh, I've adapted to the way that she feels and I really respect and, um, and love the way that she um, makes makes the guest feel like they can have what they like, you know, and, and that they're here, we're creating experience for them and that we'll do everything above and beyond to, to maximize their experience in every way, so. What about for you, if someone were to ask you for advice on getting into the business, what would your advice to them be? Um, you know, it's, it's a tough industry um, with the cost of everything going up, including, you know, payroll and taxes and minimum wage. Um, the margins keep getting smaller and smaller, um, but we try to find ways that we can maximize those margins, I guess. Um, so I would say if somebody, I would probably guide nine out of 10 people away from it. <laughs> um, because I've seen a lot of failure and I've seen a lot of success also. Um, and I don't like to see failure, I like to see success. Um, you know, nothing pleases me more to have, say a staff member that's been with us for three to four years, their vision is to go out and start their own business, whether it's a clothing store or a retail shop of some kind or, or even a restaurant, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's um, helping them along and, and coaching them and guiding them. Um, it's, it's a good feeling and helping them any way we can, so. Would you still get into the food business if you were just getting into it now? Yeah, that's all I know. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do if I didn't, if I didn't, uh, if I, if I couldn't cook anymore, if my hands were chopped off or whatever, you know, I'd probably find something again, but at this point we're kind of locked into it. You know, you can, you can take a guy out of the restaurant, but you can't take the guy out of the restaurant out of the guy. So. So we had talked earlier, obviously, we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic still, we're still, we're still dealing with that. Tell me about how it's sort of un, un, unfurled so far for you on how you've sort of dealt with it so far and kind of how you're looking ahead at, at coming out of it eventually. Sure. Well, you know, when, when the, back to say January, when it was kind of, you know, just arriving in the United States, we were kind of just sitting back and not sure where it was gonna go, nobody knew. Um, and then when we hit, uh, you know, it was March, and governor put shelter in place in order. You know, restaurants were ceased from operating um, only on a level of to go or delivery. We didn't do delivery because we didn't, um, you know, it's not, we don't have the resources to do the delivery. But, um, you know, I kind of jumped into action again, being that cowboy, jumped into action and finding what we could do to um, 
to you know sustain the revenue here and pay our bills um, so we did a to-go program which worked out very well um, we did uh, every week we do a menu it was about a four course menu that fed two it was anywhere from 65 to 75 dollars um, and the reception was very very well received in the area uh, we had the same people coming back tw um, you know sometimes twice a week um, and it just it kept going and kept going and it was inspiring um, to to see that to see that people really you know wanted to help out um, there were so many restaurants that were doing it and you know everybody was kind of jumping around doing different things at different restaurants um, and really supporting the local industry of um, you know the restaurants and, and stuff so it was um, you know as a challenge myself and, and Emily included you know we try to get out and take us and get out and dine out and, and uh, do to go as much as we could mm -hmm. but it's something you can't really project what's going to happen there is no clear path on you know where this is going to go um, it's been the the year is kind of a double-edged sword really it's been a wonderful year in so many ways because um, you know the three months that we were in shelter in place I was home six o'clock every night and able to spend time with Emily and you know we would work hard it would just be myself you know when shelter in place hit our staff was furloughed um, we you know they just knew it was there was no there was no work here um, I didn't want to take a PPE loan because or a PPP loan because it just um, I didn't have the, the work for them. Mm -hmm. So I was just basically doing everything myself, cooking and packaging and uh, creating the menus. And, and then I just decided I needed a dishwasher. So I called one of our dishwashers back. And that was really nice because literally, like I said, we were home at six o'clock every night. Um, when I'm handing that last bag out to our guests, you know, um, Juan's mopping the floor right behind me and finishing the kitchen and we're out the door. And it was really nice to be able to um, have a summer that <laughs> normally would never exist being in this industry um, you know when you're when you when you're a business owner or a restaurant owner you know you're working seven days a week even though you're gonna be closed two days a week you're working seven days a week so it was nice for Emily and I to be able to enjoy the summer together really um, she was working from home um, and uh, you know, so we, we really embraced it and, and kind of looked back and said wow you know what this is it's kind of uh, we've, we've worked so hard our whole life and work, 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 and, and um, little play. But now it's kind of, we're sitting back going, well, you know, we should, we really need to embrace the time that we have together because it's, um, we really enjoy each other's company. <laughs> we have a great time. And we've been able to travel, um, you know, around the state this year and, and have a lot of fun and you know, go to the beach and quite often and go camping. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. What about as you look ahead? Obviously, we're heading into to winter here and, and things are going to be, Still struggling. So, it's, what yeah. are you, what are you kind of hoping for? What's best case scenario? What are you planning for as you look ahead? You know, just kind of take it day by day, week by week. We're obviously planning as much as we can, trying to come up with ways to, uh, you know, sustain the business um, and sustain our staff. Um, whether it's the type of small events that we may or may not be able to do. Um, <laughs> you know, we're thinking about on you know in, in France on every Sunday morning. There's uh, the the farmers markets there. People are sitting around eating oysters and drinking muscadet. So we're thinking, you know, how can we create something like that through the winter time? People come in and grab a, you know, quick dozen oysters and a, uh, slam down a couple glasses of really nice, bracingly cold white wine, and you know, that's how you start your Sunday. So we're uh, we're thinking of ways. You know, we've always done. Um, 
the winter times we've always done our family style dinner for two which is always well received it gets people in the door mm -hmm. um, it's a, you know it's a three course menu um, that's for two for like 65 bucks people have always enjoyed that mm -hmm. it brings people in the door in a normally slower time of year but right now we're just doing three days a week we're only doing thursday friday saturday um, at the restaurant it's um, i'm just not seeing that tuesday and wednesdays are going to be um, profitable enough to be open so mm -hmm. so we've just kind of for the for the for the foreseen future we're just kind of taking it as it is mm -hmm. you know So I want to ask you a little about the about the building. Obviously, you mentioned that it had burned, and you were able to kind of rebuild it to your specifications. Yep. So tell me about uh, what you wanted it to be. What, what what was the what was the building you wanted it to be? What what is the kind of the the, the function you wanted it to be? Sure. In? And is this is this what you envisioned? Uh, it is. You know, back when we when we took possession of this in 2011, um, the place was very quirky. It was never really meant to be a restaurant, um, but the the previous owners had. Um, put the commercial kitchen in and it was we actually had two different kitchens in the restaurant um, the, the main kitchen was about 10 by 12 so it was very very small um, lots of little hallways everybody's you know bumping into each other but you know the servers and the dishwashers and the cooks you know it's a it's a very busy atmosphere there's a lot of you know people knocking elbows and whatnot but it was a dance that we all learned to do together um, it was fun, um, but it's uh, having the ability to rebuild it the way we wanted. Um, functionality and efficiency was definitely on the forefront of that. Mm -hmm. uh, a kitchen that, uh, you know, where we can see each other. Um, basically, we can talk to each other. We know what each other's doing at that moment um, is very important. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's, um, we were able to um, provide upstairs dining which is nice because in the winter time we don't we're not able to see the patio mm -hmm. so that's our overflow and our, our extra dining is upstairs which we weren't able to do before because the staircase was built in 1889 and it was definitely not up to code for <laughs> guests to go upstairs so it was a, a very steep very uh, very shallow tread on the staircases so we were able to rebuild it um, to current specifications and codes and now we're offering dining upstairs and so what do you know about the about the building's history before you yeah. uh, the building was built in 1889 um, it was a residence um, probably until the 30s or 40s hmm. maybe 50s um, the main dining room was added on in the 80s um, and then um, it was chamber of commerce it was also a lawyer's office um, and then when we took it over, it was uh, it was a little wine bar when the when the owners the previous owners um, converted it to a commercial space. It was a wine bar for a couple of years, and then it, uh, and then we saw it come available and we jumped on it. So love it. Yeah, it's a cool space. It is. It's, it's, it's cool space. you know it's it's got charm. It's got history. It's um, you know these are the original floors here. This is the original molding. We really wanted to preserve that because it's, uh, you know, it really showcases the house and, and, and its history. And, and it, I think it's really made recipe what it is. You know, again, uh, somewhere reminiscent of a home dining room mm -hmm. because this was somebody's home at one time. So. so just a kind of fun question for you here. If you had to choose, what's your favorite dish to prepare and what would you pair with it? 
You know, wow. I mean, right now there's, right now I'm really, Dungeness Crab, really loving on the Dungeness Crab. Um, Oregon Chardonnay and Dungeness Crab. We're doing a really nice uh, Dungeness Crab salad with charred serrano uh, crema and some crispy seaweed and pickled onions. So that's really nice with, uh, you know, say a Chardonnay from the Eola Amity Hills that's, um, you know, got that really linear, beautiful um, freshness and acidity that a lot of people are going for mm -hmm. down there, that kind of nouveau style. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like it. Well, we'll take three of those. If we would want to sit here while you get, you know, yeah. that sounds amazing. Um, you talked earlier about your kind of initial impression of Oregon wine. Tell me what you have seen change in the industry and, and kind of what it looks like now from your perspective. Um, you know, the industry's changed. Um, there's a, um, trying to think back 25 years ago. I mean, people grow up through it. Um, you know, they, like I was mentioning, you know, Jesse Lang, mm -hmm. um, at 10 years old, riding his skateboard around. Now he's the, the winemaker up mm -hmm. there. Um, I see it changing. I see a lot of people um, being really excited about it, planting different types of grapes, trying different um, methods, um, whether it's a, you know, whole cluster fermentation or, um, you know, extended skin contact with like a Pinot Gris or the white Pinot Noir that people are doing. There's just a lot of experimentation going on in the industry, I think, which is a lot of fun. Um, it's just like with food, you know, winemakers get to experiment with grapes, we get to experiment with food. And uh, it keeps you, keeps your vision alive and it keeps you kind of, kind of going and reaching for that next goal. Uh, what do you think, what do you, as you look ahead for, for wine, for the wine industry, uh, what do you, again, from your perspective, what do you see Oregon wine looking like over the next five or ten years? I think it's a really exciting time to be in Oregon wine country. Um, you know, there's new opportunities, not only for, um, for, for winemakers, but there's new opportunities for chefs. Hmm. Um, seems to be, you know, uh, I think this, this industry in this area is still very young, so I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think um, we're going to see, you know, I think we'll have, three years ago, Willamette Valley was, was rated the number one wine region in the United States. So that's very exciting. That's mm -hmm. a that's a great that's a huge feather in our cap here. Um, so I see it just continuing to evolve. Um, there's gonna be more wineries, more winemakers, more restaurants. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be a slow transition. Um, I think people are cautious, especially right now with COVID. Mm -hmm. So they're cautious about moving forward and not you know really holding on to what they have and not overextending themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, McMinnville is a great example of a town that's that's done such a good job. The dynamics that the McMinnville Downtown Association has established um, with the dine out mm -hmm. um, in the, the summer, which they closed down the streets Friday through Sunday was amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, we got to enjoy that a couple times. Um, there's definitely a, a great, um, you know, vision for, for for McMinnville that I see coming to Newburgh shortly. And if I can uh, help out that, I'd love to. Because I'm very <laughs> invested in this town, I love it. Mm -hmm. We live five blocks from the restaurant. Um, you know, we, we love this town. It's, uh, it's a great town, so, yeah. I think overall, um, you know, Oregon wine country will continue to um, climb up the ladder and it's, uh, and it's, uh, Expose, exposure around the world. Um, I think the wines will continue to evolve. Um, 
getting better and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. so I, Obviously, with, with the caveat that your story today has already, has already kind of told us the, the danger of looking too far ahead into the future and planning, but uh, I'm curious, uh, as you look ahead for yourself and for, and for recipe, what do you see uh, five, ten years down the road? Five, ten years down the road, um, you know, my wife and I, had, we've, with our vision is to be able to have that husband and wife team mm-hmm. as operators, um, so that's something we're working towards. Um, you know, creating that, uh, you know, I think back in the day, uh, this area was, the, the restaurants in this area were founded by husband and wife teams. You got David and Tina Bergen. You've got um, Richard and Nancy Gertz, who founded uh, Red Hills Provincial mm-hmm. Dining. You've got the Ponzi's, who built the Bistro. So I think there's a, there's a good overall um, plan for us to, you know, uh, evolve um, here, not only here, but perhaps in other spaces around the valley or beyond. So, I think the dining scene is um, right now. It's kind of going a little more casual. People, people like that um, casual dining atmosphere, food they are familiar with. I think people really enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that comforting food that uh, in, a, in a in a very challenging time right now. You know, we're finding that people like food that's they're familiar with and and. Uh, it's affordable mm-hmm. and good value and good quality. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Food, food and wine to make people happy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. On that note, uh, last question for you. We're going to get a little philosophical for you here. Uh, what is the role of wine in society? The what? The role of wine in society. Um, the role of wine in society. To drink it, to enjoy it, to uh, bring people together around a table, to... Uh, embrace it and really uh, understand it and see how it works or doesn't work with food. Um, it, yeah. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything I think we so. didn't cover? We should have I think so. All right, excellent. You guys good? You everything good? Okay. Uh, thank you so much for yeah, joining us today. Appreciate yeah, all your stories and thoughts. Yeah, of course. And I'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.